Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to another live edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. It is, I think, Tuesday. Yeah, my calendar's saying it's April 26th, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, which makes it 5 p.m. in Halifax, 5.30 in Newfoundland, I think 1 o'clock on Vancouver Island, uh, 2 o'clock in the great province of Alberta, where I just was over the weekend. And I have no idea what time it is in Saskatchewan. You guys do that weird day. I think you're only an hour behind in when daylight savings, but I always get mixed up because Saskatchewan decides to do its own thing on daylight savings, where the rest of us have to change our calendar. So I think they're, I think they're on basically central time now. So if you're in uh, Moose Jaw or Regina, let me know. I think it's about 3 o'clock your time. If you're listening in the podcast, you just uh, wonder why I've wasted 90 seconds of your life that you'll never get back telling you the times of places when uh, it's not those times now. So I'm going to move on. But thanks to all of you for tuning in to the program. It's a big day in Canada. We're going to be talking about the Emergencies Act review, the inquiry that the Liberal government has finally decided to launch on the very last day it could, 60 days afterwards. And they're not really focused on assessing their own actions and their own conduct. And we're going to be speaking about this shortly with two fantastic lawyers on this, Joanna Barron of the Canadian Constitution Foundation and Kara Zwiebel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, both of whom have legal challenges afoot against the Emergencies Act. But I want to read Justin Trudeau's announcement because the whole point of it is that the Emergencies Act is an Emergency Measures Act. It's a War Measures Act, basically. It's the a bill that replaced the War Measures Act, which hasn't been invoked since 1972, I think it was. And the thing about that, and people fail to realize this, the Pierre Trudeau War Measures Act invocation over the FLQ crisis was controversial and, and remains to this day controversial. And in that case, two people had been kidnapped. There had been bombings. There had been a political assassination. And that was deemed controversial. This one was over bouncy castles, pig roasts, saunas, and honking of truck horns. So even if the bill has changed, we're talking about the most severe emergency legislation imaginable to Canada right now within the realm of what is legal in Canada. And I think there needs to be a very robust inquiry, not just because the law says there must be, but because we as a country deserve to know what evidence the government had to justify this emergency. So that's the angle that I go into this with. But here's what Justin Trudeau said. The commission will examine the circumstances that led to the declaration being issued and the measures taken in response to the emergency. This includes the evolution of the convoy, the impact of funding and disinformation, the economic impact, and efforts of police and other responders prior to and after the declaration. Did you, did you catch that? So what they're saying is that they're going to be more focused on the convoy when the emergency measures inquiry is supposed to be into the government and into the emergencies act and how the government applied that. So this is why I think the government is trying to cover its own behind here, not have a, a genuine introspection into how it went about this, a, a bill that allowed or not a bill, but a, an order in council that allowed the government allowed the government to suspend civil liberties while claiming they were not doing that. 
We, I should have pulled the clip for today's show. Justin Trudeau saying on a number of occasions, oh, no, this is not affecting civil liberties. Everything's going to be subject to the charter and all that. Meanwhile, reporters, uh, you know, yours truly, were being pepper sprayed. And more acutely, reporters were being denied the right to walk down a street without being threatened with arrest by police. That is not civil liberties being intact. Not at all. So this is going to be an exercise in the government effectively covering, covering itself, concocting whatever excuses it can come up with to say that what it did was defensible when the more we learn about it, the less defensible this looks. Uh, Bill Blair, who was previously the public safety minister, I forget his exact title now, I think he's just the emergency preparedness minister now, was asked in the House of Commons about this yesterday, and he was asked specifically if the government would give the inquiry access to confidential and secret documents, specifically cabinet documents. And this is what Bill Blair said. When this country was faced with very real threats to critical infrastructure, our vital supply lines, and the incredible disruption that was taking place right out here in the streets of Ottawa, our government did what was necessary and required to deal with that situation through the invocation of the Act. Mr. Speaker, and today I want to advise this House that today the government is fulfilling its statutory requirements in appointing uh, Justice uh, Paul Rouleau as the Commissioner of the, of the Public uh, Inquiry into, into the circumstances of this Act. Mr. Speaker, we will do what is required and we will do it in the right way. A public inquiry into the circumstances of the act. Now, I never want to make the mistake of assuming that Bill Blair knows what he's talking about. So I'm not going to focus too, too much on individual words. But again, it does sound like he's saying exactly what Trudeau was saying, which is that they're more interested in making this an inquiry into the convoy which is not supposed to be what it is. I, I want to play another clip of Marco Mendicino. He is the public safety minister now. And why Marco Mendicino is relevant here is because when the Emergencies Act was put in place initially, he gave this press conference that I, I covered and I played the clip of on this show. And it was a long clip. I didn't play the whole thing on the show, but I, I posted it online if you want to go and look it up. I think it was like five and a half, six minutes long. And at first he said that there was evidence connecting a violent cell that wanted to commit acts of violence in Ottawa and overthrow the government and that this was tied to the convoy in Ottawa. And he made a very clear and a very decisive proclamation of this. And to their credit, reporters there asked him to pony up the evidence and said, what do you mean by this? What are you talking about? What group? What plot? What violence? And it took like four or five times asking the question before he finally walked it back. And not only did he walk it back, but he walked it back to such a point where it was unrecognizable. And he said, well, uh, he's, he's seen things on Twitter that, uh, you know, were a bit concerning. So he went from a conspiracy to overthrow the government with violent force to I saw mean tweets. And, and you may think this is just a little gaffe or something you can poke fun at him over, a little thing that's just amusing. Oh, yeah, the minister that fumbled his words. But, but it's very significant because you're talking about governments that are prepared to be brazenly dishonest simply to justify and to rationalize their invocation of this act. And he still has not put forward any evidence. Let's play the clip of Marco Mendicino talking about the Emergencies Act specifically. Mr. 
Well, I think we can be unequivocally clear about a number of things looking back uh, in the events of January and February of this year. One, um, the incredible and devastating damage that was done to public safety at ports of entry in the form of interruption to uh, trade and travel, uh, the interruption to supply chains, including uh, with regards to vital health supplies, which Canadians needed on a daily basis, um, the disruption to public safety in our communities, in our neighbourhoods, and the unique and unprecedented challenges that these illegal occupations and blockades posed. Um, and it was only after um, very careful consideration on the advice of professional, nonpartisan branches of law enforcement that we invoked the Emergencies Act. It was a necessary decision. It was a responsible decision. It was the right thing to do. And we are certainly looking forward to cooperating with Justice Rouleau in the context of this public inquiry uh, so that he has the fulsome record as well as the Joint Parliamentary Committee, which is uh, looking at this at the same time. Sorry? Will you have full access to cabinet documents? So uh, on that issue, uh, I will say, uh, as Ministers Blair and Mr. LeBlanc said, that pursuant to the Act, the judge, the Order and Council, that the judge will have broad access, including to classified documents. Um, our intent is to collaborate uh, with the judge so that he has a fulsome record so that he can do his job. It sounded like if you didn't know what to listen for, he was agreeing. If you didn't know what to listen for, it sounded like he was agreeing. But what actually happened was he was saying something entirely different because cabinet documents are secret. And the government would have to acknowledge that this inquiry had the right to those secret cabinet documents. It would have to waive cabinet confidentiality. And it doesn't sound like they're prepared to do that. Just in the Globe and Mail a few days ago, there was a court filing. A court filing, according to a justice writer, Sean Fine, in which the government cited cabinet confidentiality in its legal filing. So they were not even prepared to waive it in a lawsuit, in a legal challenge against it. So this is tremendously important. And this is something that we are going to see more of because what the government is not going to want to do is admit that it didn't have the evidence. The government is not going to want to admit that it didn't have the information it claimed it did, that the things weren't as severe as they claimed they were. And one example of this, uh, because Marco Mendicino brought it up, I'll bring it up here, the economic harm that was being unleashed by the border blockades. Now, I was critical of the border blockades. They were a different animal from the convoy protest in Ottawa, but I think it speaks to just how organic it was. No one was calling the shots. Trucks just showed up, and then when they saw this thing was happening, more showed up. And both the Coots Crossing and the Ambassador Bridge Crossing in Ontario were dismantled without the Emergencies Act, which I, I think people need to be reminded of. But when he talked about the economic harm, Statistics Canada's own data, so this is the government's data, say, and this is, by the way, incredible, they say that there was no effect on trade. I, I should be clarified. Global News did a summary that said little effect on trade. But the headline of the global story, the economic nightmare that wasn't. Border blockades had little effect on trade, data reveal. And what's, I think, fascinating here, there was a University of Toronto economics professor who said, oh, I was surprised. 
I thought it would be worse. But they found that cross-border trade in Ontario and Alberta was up 16% in February of 2021, or 2022 rather, compared to 2021. It was up 16%. Now, that was compared to the same month the year previous. So obviously, pandemic and supply chain, there might have been some issues. But the whole point is, is that it was disrupted, it was delayed, but it didn't actually have an overall decline in trade. So if the government wants to use that trade was devastated, that cross-border trade was brought to its knees, it can't actually convincingly make that case because the government's own data reveal it isn't. The government's own data reveal that is not the case at all. And what uh, one f a seed processor in Fort McLeod, Alberta said is that, yeah, everything went to a halt for a couple of days, but within a week, it was being uh, redirected to other border crossings. It was inconvenient, but overall, the trade was still taking place. So I think this is important because you can't invoke something like the Emergencies Act, as I understand it, over what could happen you have to invoke it over what is happening and over what has happened. And there were a lot of hypotheticals here. You had Marco Mendicino talking about the importance of uh, telling people that there was this violent plot. So again, the, the possibility of violence, the possibility of a conspiracy, the possibility of a coup. Well, that's actually different than the reality of whether that was taking place. And I still go back to the fundamental question here of whether this inquiry is going to be focusing its efforts on investigating the government and the government's uh, initiative here of the Emergencies Act or whether it's going to just be focused on the protests and on the protesters. And that's very important. I mean, they're trumpeting it as an independent review. I, I've been focusing on some of the lines from the announcement by the prime minister's office that the judge may take this in a wildly different direction than what the government has set up. But remember, it's the government who has established the inquiry. It's the government that has actually put this forward. I want to bring into this discussion uh, two fantastic uh, experts on this, both of whom are representing organizations that have been on the front lines of uh, challenging the Emergencies Act and its invocation here. The first is Joanna Barron of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, who joins me now. Joanna, always good to talk to you. Thanks very much. When you heard that this inquiry was coming, did you think this was going to be like just a, a true, broad, fact-finding expedi expedition that was going to get to the bottom of this? Or did you expect it would really just be box-checking? Well, I certainly hope for the best. And I was signatory to a letter that also another guest is going to be talking about asking for the commissioner to be appointed independently. That did not happen. The Liberal cabinet chose who is going to direct the inquiry, who is uh, Justice Paul Rouleau. Um, so I hope for the best and I remain hoping for the best. Um, but early indications are not particularly encouraging. Yeah, and obviously the government had this 60-day window to trigger this. They waited in, until the last possible day. At the end of it, is there going to be a, a finding of whether it was justified or unjustified, or is it really just going to be a list of facts that people, uh, whether it's civil society groups, the government and the public, can just look and, and draw their own conclusions from? 
Yeah, it's unclear. Certainly the ordering council makes clear that there's going to be no determination of any civil or criminal liability, and it is going to be kind of a fishing expedition. It's going to look at the circumstances leading up to the declaration of the public order emergency, but it also is tasked with looking into the findings and lessons learned on including the use of the Emergencies Act. And we certainly hope, and the CCF has formally requested to participate in this inquiry, that those findings should include whether the requirements on its face, the legal requirements of the Emergencies Act were in fact met. I want to bring into this discussion uh, Kara Zwiebel, who is with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, where she heads up the Fundamental Freedoms Program. Uh, Kara, one of the things that jumped out at me when I saw the Prime Minister's office's announcement of this, and I, I'm going to read the quote again, that it will examine the circumstances that led to the declaration being issued and the measures taken in response to the emergency. This includes the evolution of the convoy, the impact of funding and disinformation, the economic impact, and the effects of police or efforts of police and other responders prior to and after. It sounds like there's more of an emphasis on investigating the protest and the protesters rather than the government's own decision-making process, which really doesn't appear in that list at all. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the way the government has sort of framed this is it does, it does try to emphasize some of those aspects a little more than, uh, you know, looking at the government's own actions and, and accountability and really the, you know, the inquiry being baked into the Emergencies Act is there for accountability purposes to, to hold the government accountable. Um, so, so while I think the government's framing is problematic, I'm not actually concerned that the inquiry will be, you know, restrained uh, in terms of what it can do, because I think it, it does, um, it does lay out those, those terms in fairly, you know, broad strokes. And I, and I think that, um, you know, especially looking at, of course, we want to examine sort of the, the law enforcement reaction and 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 how that all unfolded. Uh, I think that will necessarily give us answers to a lot of the questions that we we want answers to around how the government acted and then how it made the decisions that it made. I know that uh, several cabinet ministers have, have said, Kara, that there's going to be access to confidential documents. Do we know yet if that will include cabinet documents? Um, I don't think we know that. Um, you know, I know that um, there is a dispute about that ongoing in, in the litigation, particularly in uh, the, the CCF's case involving, um, you know, we, we both our organizations have judicial review applications pending about this. And so um, I think the cabinet confidence issue is raised there. I don't think we know what the inquiry will um, will have access to yet. And I think, you know, one of the concerns is that um, there is a pretty tight timeline for the inquiry in terms of when it needs to report. Um, and so I do hope that this kind of evidentiary and procedural wrangling won't take up the time that's really necessary to get into the, the substantive issues. Obviously, Kara just mentioned uh, the CCF's legal challenge, that the CCLA ha has one as well. Uh, let me ask you, Joanna, I mean, obviously the inquiry, as we talked about a few moments ago, is serving a different purpose from the legal challenge, but, but is ultimately the information that's going to come out in both going to be very similar? I think in many cases, yes. And that's why we have a concern that there will be a similar assertion to the assertion that the government is currently making in the legal case, i.e. that they are shielding many of the relevant documents about 
what happened in the lead up to the declaration of the emergency, what the deliberations were on the level of cabinet, what information they had. They have declared cabinet confidence over broad swaths of that. And our submission is that at very least, those documents and that information should be disclosed on a council only basis, as was done in the Air India inquiry. Um, and so if they're inserting it in the court proceeding, I don't see why they wouldn't also assert the same in the public inquiry. And the answer should be the same, that at very least, there should be an aspect of adversarial process and lawyers should be able to access this information. It goes to the heart of the question, was cabinet justified in invoking this act based on what they knew at the time? And I mean, this is a, a very challenging question, I'm assuming, Kara, not being a lawyer, as you two are, but because there is no precedent, this is really going to set the benchmark. So how do you decide if something that's never been done before, an act that's never been put to the test before, was justified in its invocation in this case? To, is, it, is it easy for the government to uh, prove that hurdle by demonstrating things that could have happened, or do they have to stick to things that were happening? Uh, you know, I, I think that they, they do have to stick to sort of the realities on the ground. If we had had a situation where, um, you know, we, we've had now experience with uh, emergency declarations in all the provinces and territories related to the pandemic. And it's kind of interesting that the federal government never felt it was necessary to to invoke the Emergencies Act to deal with um to deal with the COVID pandemic. But I think, you know, a public health crisis is a situation where you might um, you might reasonably say that the government could act in a in a more precautionary kind of way. I think with um, with a public order emergency, and particularly given that we were you know in a situation where um, things sort of carried on for a few weeks before the federal government decided to to invoke the act, um, I think I think it would be hard for them to make an argument that you know they had to do this to avoid what might happen in the future. I think they they do have to ground their justification in in what was happening um, and what tools were were available and what tools were not available to them. I know some of the political response when the Emergencies Act was invoked came from the fact that the more disruptive blockade, specifically at the Ambassador Bridge and the Coots Alberta border crossing, had been dismantled with provincial resources without a federal emergency. Does that is that relevant in this context as well in the review and, and the litigation? Uh, I'll start with you, Joanna. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't want to cut you off, Kara. Uh, it's certainly relevant. I know that the questions are starting to emerge about to what extent trade was actually impacted. I saw an article today that actually trade in Canada, including cross-border trade, went up 14% in February. But still, if there was a reasonable, you know, reasonable pressing economic emergency, I think that is legitimate for cabinet to say that they relied upon. Um, the question, of course, is whether it was an economic crisis that could not affect be dealt with by any other law in Canada. And that's where I think there's a real problem, particularly given that that border crossing, both border crossings were cleared using ordinary police powers before the Emergencies Act was even invoked. Yeah, I'll go to you, Kara. Yeah, thanks. Sorry, I, I muted so that you didn't hear the, the five-year-old screaming in the background. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think that's, I think the, the, I think it is relevant sort of what, um, you know, what could have been done, what was done, um, what tools were available and whether, um, you know, whether the the issues in Ottawa that that, you know, weren't addressed as expeditiously as as were the the issues at the border um, is a result of sort of an absence of political will or um, or an absence of legal tools. And I, I certainly think that, 
you know, the experience at the border shows that there were there were tools available um, and uh, and those tools just needed to be put to use. So um, I think that's an important part of this. And, um, you know, and I think also one of the reasons that some provinces did object to the use of the Emergencies Act in the first place, they sort of said, you know, we do have the tools to deal with this. And, and, it, and it's a big deal to, you know, to open up this box. And once we've opened it, um, there's a concern about the precedent that we've set. Uh, just lastly, for you, Joanna, if this Emergencies Act is found to have been justified, uh, that doesn't, as I, I would presume and I would hope, uh, justify everything the government did under the auspices of the Emergencies Act. So the application in some context could still be challenged, could it not? Yeah, certainly. In addition to the invocation of the act itself, there's the charter rights that were violated by other, you know, following legal uh, legal instruments like the economic measures, um, like the measures that gave police powers to stop any public gathering if they had reason to believe that it could result in a breach of the peace in this prophylactic way. So the individuals whose charter rights were harmed in the subsequent actions will still be relevant and could still be found to be unlawful, even if the invocation itself is found to be valid. And Kara, as I understand it, I mean, Ottawa, the Parliament Hill was never a clarif- a classified a- as critical infrastructure. So did the Emergencies Act even really apply to that protest? I've seen some dispute in that. Um. No, I, th- I think that, I mean, the, th- there was, uh, you know, what I'm, I'm trying to remember now, now that I have the terms of reference from the, like the, the latest order in council around the Emergencies Act, I'm getting confused with, with what was actually in the, the emergency um, order itself. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's a, a doubt that under the order, under the powers that the government gave itself, they, they did have the authority to clear out um, downtown Ottawa. Um, you know, but, but the question is sort of whether, um, because, because the orders, the, the powers that they gave themselves did extend beyond that, right? It, it, it extended really from coast to coast to coast, um, and it affected, it, it, it couldn't be used against any individual across the country. So, um, you know, that's one of the things I think in, in both the litigation and, and perhaps in the inquiry, um, that we'll be talking about is, um, even if, as you say, you know, even if uh, someone were to accept that it was appropriate to to proclaim an emergency, were the orders that the government put in place um, broader than they needed to be to to sort of get the job done? Kara Zwiebel, director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and Joanna Barron, executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Thank you both so much, not just for your time, but also your tremendous work on this file. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's truly, truly astonishing. And I, I know that Kara was a bit more optimistic than I was that the actual inquiry will be fulsome and, and broad. I was latching on to what Justin Trudeau said, in which, again, he wants a full inquiry into the convoy. He wants an inquiry into the protesters rather than his own government. And I think there's an important point here that even if, even if we find and accept and all agree that the Emergencies Act was hunky-dory, which I think is a big if, it doesn't mean that everything they did under it was. And I go back to, again, police uh, denying individuals the right to walk down the street in Ottawa, which was supposed to be lawful. 
You were supposed to be able to go into the so-called red zone if you had a lawful purpose for doing it, which means anyone that wasn't going in there to break the law, anyone that wanted to even protest on the front lawn of Parliament Hill should have been allowed to do that, not threatened with arrest or in some cases actually arrested. So we'll cover this more in the shows to come. I suspect this is going to go on for weeks or months. Wanted to, to pivot ever so slightly on the topic of downtown Ottawa to a conference that's taking place in just a couple of weeks time. Actually, not even. I think it's like a week and a half now because it kicks off on March 5th. And that is the Canada Strong and Free Networks Conference, formerly the Manning Centre. Joining me from the Canada Strong and Free Network is Kate Harrison, the program lead there. Kate, always good to talk to you. I know people see you on TV all the time, so I'm glad you uh, uh, took some time for us today. Uh, what's on the agenda? Well, you're you're my favorite, Andrew, so don't tell anybody Oh, you're else. too kind. You're back anytime you want. We, we do have a really packed agenda coming up. Uh, as you say, things are set to kick off on Thursday, May 5th. Uh, it's happening at the Shaw Centre in Ottawa, and this is the first time, Andrew, as you know, that uh, we have everybody back together in person post-COVID. We had a couple of virtual conferences that happened uh, in 2020 and 21. Uh, needless to say, we're, we're keen to be back in person. So uh, a few big highlights on the program. Uh, we're kicking things off on Thursday night uh, with a debate between Conservative Party candidate leadership contenders. Uh, that's going to be happening on our main stage. And that'll be really the first opportunity for those candidates that are on the ballot uh, to face off against one, each one another and, and answer some questions in a room full of uh, activists and, and grassroots uh, conservatives. So Jamil Giovanni and, and Candace Malcolm are going to be our moderators for that evening. That's Thursday. Uh, on, uh, on Friday, uh, we've got a couple of really great sessions lined up with former Premier Mike Harris, of course, Preston Manning, talking about the state of the country. Uh, we're going to have a, deba a debate on big tech regulation. That's going to be with Robbie Sawav and, and Jamil Giovanni. Uh, Eric Duhame, the leader of the Conservatives, uh, the Conservative Party in Quebec, is going to be speaking that day as well. Interim leader uh, Candace Bergen, the leader of the official opposition. And then on Saturday, we're going to have Yeonmi Park. Uh, she's a North Korean dissident, has uh, led a number of talks uh, about the importance of free speech. Uh, she's had an incredible journey uh, from her time in, in leaving North Korea and talking about uh, the, the struggles of the people there. Uh, and a bit of a forward look uh, from some younger members of the Conservative Caucus about what they see as the future of the party. So those are some of the big highlights on the agenda, but lots more sprinkled in there. One of the things that's always been interesting about the, the former Manning conferences is that it was always focused on the conservative movement and not the conservative party, which I, I thought was important. And obviously you have a lot of overlap there, uh, certainly before you had the split off into the PPC and, and whatnot. I mean, every conservative member of parliament and cabinet minister uh, when Stephen Harper was in government would always come. And, and obviously you've got the conservative leadership race this time around. I, what would you say is generally speaking the level of optimism, if there is optimism, in the conservative movement in Canada right now? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And, and to your point about kind of that, that separation between the movement and the party, uh, we really pride ourselves at this forum of, of making sure that it's not just for card-carrying conservative members. There are a lot of people, obviously, that align uh, with different aspects of conservatism that maybe don't even intend to vote in the leadership race. But uh, this is a good opportunity to hear from those uh, in the formal big C conservative movement, as those as well as those leaders uh, outside of the movement. They're either with think tanks, grassroots organizations, uh, their content creators, uh, people that are really uh, leading in this space. And I think that 
um, especially emerging out of the pandemic, looking around at uh, the state of government in this country and other countries, there's a real desire for change and an optimism that uh, maybe a small C conservative thought can, can take root and take hold as it has in, uh, of course, some jurisdictions in the US come to mind, uh, but elsewhere around the world. So I think that conservatives are feeling positive about the movement, positive about reconnecting with one another. This is a good chance to hear from those in the party, but also outside the party about their reflections on the state of the movement uh, heading into, into this year and future years as well. I remember in 2017, uh, the the conference held a leadership debate, but that was the year where we had like, I think it was like 72,000 uh, leadership candidates. And and I remember the conference did something really great, which no one else had done because I moderated one of those like 13 person uh, debates and it was a little bit overwhelming. They broke it up into like different debates and like mini debates. I think groups of three or four, you know, one group would do the foreign policy debate. Another would do the economics debate. It actually worked out pretty well. This time you'll probably have fewer candidates. So I think it'll be more manageable. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, there were some of those considerations as well, depending on the event timing. Were we going to go that route or, or are we going to just have everybody on stage at once? Uh, there's a pretty big deadline coming up April 29th. Uh, and that is when we would know with some certainty uh, who is going to be on the ballot uh, for the for the um, the Conservative Party race, so only those candidates that are verified, Andrew, are going to be on our debate stage. I think that it will be a pretty manageable number. Um, not the first time we've had to try and organize a leadership debate on the fly. We had to do that as well uh, in 2019-2020 after Andrew Shear departed. So something we've been uh, trying to wrap our heads around uh, at the conference uh, because we have a full program kind of prior to this starting. So able to make it work. But, uh, you know, as an organizer, we're hoping that this is the last leadership race uh, for some time because it'd be great what? to have some consistency. Yeah. What are you looking forward to? Uh, there's a few sessions on the agenda that I think are going to be really, really compelling. Uh, we're doing a session called What's Happening in Our Cities, and that's going to be uh, featuring Michael Schellenberger, who's obviously uh, written quite a bit on the nature of the opioid crisis, uh, addictions and treatment in San Francisco, uh, the failed policies of the left in that particular area, and both um, helping addicts, but also protecting communities. And uh, we're going to have some other subject matter experts on that panel as well. This is a subject matter that um, is in my view, unfortunately, really dominated by left of center voices. They like to wrap their arms around issues around addiction and mental health and claim it as their own, uh, when in fact, a lot of small C conservative policies can really help those that are that are struggling. So I, I'm really looking forward to that session. We have a few others on uh, education reform, cost of living crisis, uh, among other things. So so I'm, I'm really excited in some of the more uh, the the meat on the agenda uh, outside of the few big sessions. So there's really something for everybody in this particular uh, conference lineup. We're also doing a, a global hotspot session, uh, talking with with experts about uh, the threats today, obviously posed uh, by by Eastern Europe, where Canada fits in uh, to the mix, but also the nature of the Canada U.S. relationship, uh, the relation with China, among other things. So a little bit of something for everybody. I, I'm really bad at conferences because I'll have this great sessions, these great sessions that I want to go to. And then I just like find someone in the hall I haven't seen in like seven years and just like talk to them and miss it. But uh, they're all good. You can go there for the socializing. You can go there for the uh, programming or the leadership debate. And uh, if you see me walking around as well, do say hello. And I get to see you again. I haven't seen you in a couple of years, I think, with all the uh, everything being shut down. So uh, thanks very much for coming on. We'll see you in Ottawa and uh, many of you tuning in. Kate Harrison, thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Andrew. See you in Ottawa.
All right, we'll see you then. That is the Canada Strong and Free Network. And True North, the reason I, I'm focusing on this so much is because True North is actually going to be broadcasting from the conference. We'll have uh, lots going on there. Uh, Candace Malcolm, I know she's going to be busy with the debate Thursday night, but uh, she'll be in the uh, True North Media Center later on. And I don't even know, I don't even know what we're doing there. I know we're going to be just doing all sorts of stuff, interviewing people. Uh, some of it will be streaming live. Others will be uh, will be recording for later on. So uh, you won't want to miss that, I hope. That does it for us for today. We will talk to you in a couple days time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is the Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.